1: Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive Expanded Aspect Ratio.
2: Oh, hello. Yes, it's Attaboy Clarence time again. Here I am to annoy those earpieces of yours. It's July. The sun is scorching the very earth beneath our feet. I hope you're all keeping well, safe, and cool in this sweltering weather. What a show coming up for you. Yes, there's music. Yes, old-time radio, but hang fire. You want movie reviews? We've got three of the blighters and a trio of absolute firecrackers on the way. Not just that, but an interview for you. And not just anyone, but a bona fide Hollywood superstar screenwriter who also happens to be an old Hollywood fanatic. All of that coming up. Because this is old Hollywood heaven, and to prove it, here's one of those songs that just wouldn't exist today unless Hollywood had engraved it onto your heart.
3: I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feel, and I'm happy again. I'm laughing at
4: clouds so dark up above
3: the sun's in my heart and i'm ready for love let the stormy clouds chase everyone from the place come on with the rain i've a smile on my face i'll walk down the lane with a happy refrain just singin Singing in the rain Dancing in the rain I'm happy again I'm
5: singing And dancing in
3: In
2: the rain. Thank you, Mr. Kelly, but as we know, the rain isn't due for at least another season. It's that time again, folks. The Dark Pages is back with a stunning new issue. This time the team bring you a super sized edition focusing on films such as The Whistle at Eaton Falls from 1951, Scarlet Street from 1945, and one of the more unlikely noir films from 1950. Hitchcock's stage fright of course entirely set in London and with a definite comedic tone to it but a noir all the same read their take on it along with much much more by picking up the new edition of The Dark Pages just go to www.allthatnoir.com they'll even give you a free copy so that you can see how good it is Well, I said this was a packed show for you today, and I meant it. Truly an epic. We're going to fly on over now for another Hollywood guessing game. Yes, a legendary Hollywood name is here to try and fox you. But will you guess their identity? I'm going to give you a clue this time. All I'm going to say is that before the answer is revealed, you will have heard this superstar's name on today's show at some point. So prick up those ears, sharpen your wits, and see if you can tell... Who the hell is that Hollywood legend? As
6: you know, in the case of our mystery challenger, we always dispense with the uh, usual preliminaries. We get right down to the general questioning, which we will begin with Miss Arlene Francis. Uh, are you in the entertainment business? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Have you appeared in pictures? Male?
4: Take
7: the law.
4: What? Yes?
6: Maybe airmail. <laughs> yes, answer that, Miss Arlene.
4: <laughs> and you've uh,
0: appeared in television? <laughs>
4: <laughs> and radio? <laughs> 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 Well,
0: there's nothing very much left then. Uh, would you be considered a comedian?
4: <laughs> Are
7: you, uh, would you consider yourself a leading man?
6: Mm-mm. I would say that our guest is handsome enough to be a leading man and um, young enough to be a leading man and is very probably considered a leading man.
7: But he doesn't consider himself a leading man?
6: I think probably he also considers himself a leading
4: man <laughs>
1: <laughs>
4: Would I consider you a leading man? <laughs> <laughs> well, are you uh, primarily
0: known as a comedian? Is that your forte? Or are you also a straight actor? So are you are
6: you... Pri- one question at a time All right, are you
7: primarily known as a comedian? Uh-huh. Do you uh, do anything besides act? I mean by that, do you
0: play a, a musical instrument or sing? <laughs>
4: uh-huh.
7: You do do one of those things? Are you a singer?
6: <laughs> one down and nine to go, Mr. Block.
4: <laughs>
6: well, have you, have you been on a television show in the last year? Ha-ha uh-huh. Happened to ha-ha <laughs> Uh, have you ever had your own show in radio or television?
4: <laughs>
6: uh, have you ever been uh, featured in a picture?
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs>
6: and this isn't your great racket? You know something you should just stick to being a comedian? <laughs> Uh, in addition to being a comedian, you do something else. Do you, uh, do you play an instrument? Uh Uh-huh. Oh! I bet you thought I knew what I was talking
4: about.
6: (laughs) Uh, is it by any chance uh, a very popular instrument?
4: Uh Uh-huh.
6: Something that most people have in the home? Well, to the degree that people have an interest in music, you might find this in a great many homes. Is it possibly something with strings? Uh-huh. Strings, yes. Yeah. Uh, is it the piano? That would make it, too. <laughs> well, pianos have strings. Two down, a date to go. Miss Gilgallum.
0: Hmm. Uh, have you ever appeared on the New York stage? Uh-huh. Were you a comedian then, too? Uh-huh. When you work as a comedian, are you usually in proximity to people who are known as stooges or supporting players, I suppose,
6: more politely? (laughs) Uh (laughs) (laughs) Whatever became a (laughs) ha-ha. Did I get a yes on that? You go on from there. Actually, I think, Miss Kilgallen, that we would have to admit that um, our guest is... um, On many occasions, uh, a monologist, and on other occasions, um, you will find that he uses supporting players.
0: He seems to do everything. Do you have a regular radio program of your own? Uh-huh. And do you use supporting players on that? Uh-huh. Steve, I'll pass to you while I cogitate.
6: All right, Mr. Allen, let's see what you can do. We have about two minutes and a half to go. While you're cogitating, why don't you think it over?
0: I'm going to try (laughs) it.
6: Let's see. uh... does your does your wife ever work with you when you work
4: uh-huh
6: that's too bad <laughs>
4: hmm. I'll
6: speak to your agent about that um do you by any chance ever work with your orchestra leader i mean is he a part of your uh, entourage
4: uh-huh
6: is your hair uh, <laughs> <laughs> Are you having a little trouble with your hair?
4: Uh-uh.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Is that properly the no answer? Okay, that's three down and seven to go. <laughs> <laughs>
4: He's
0: having no trouble with his hair.
6: Uh, he has hair. Hi. Looks grand. Have you hair? <laughs> It is both full and handsome. Go on from there, Miss Reckon.
7: Um, let me see now. Have you ever been on the road to anything in a picture?
6: Uh-uh. Mm-mm. <laughs> that makes it uh, four down and six to go, Mr. Block. Are you in New York in a uh, vehicle right now? <clears throat> no, he's on a stage in a theater. That's five down and five to go, Miss Kilgallen.
0: Well, are you usually in California?
6: Are you usually in California?
0: Is that where you live? Mm hmm. Well, if you work with your wife and you play a stringed instrument and you have hair, even if it isn't all your own... You-
2: we will stop it right there. Any guesses? And I mean, I have to say, all the big clues are right there for you and the name is one that you will definitely have heard by the time you reach the reveal later. <laughs> Now, movie time. There's an electric killer on the loose in 1948's He Walked By Night, but not the fun electric kind of killer like in Man Made Monster. A more nerdy kind of electric killer. He's a killer who's also an electrician. I can feel your excitement ebbing away, so I'll get to the good stuff. It's a dark night in L.A. Not that there are any other kinds of night. But this one's especially bleak because someone's burgled an electrical shop. Officer Rawlins is called to patrol the area and happens upon the burglar, Roy Morgan, played by Richard Basehart. But Roy is one step ahead of him.
8: This is Los Angeles. Our Lady, the Queen of the Angels, as the Spaniards named her. The fastest-growing city in the nation. It's been called a bunch of suburbs in search of a city. And it's been called the glamour capital of the world. A mecca for tourists. A stopover for tranchions. A target for gangsters. A haven for those fleeing from winter. A home for the hard-working. It is a city holding the hopes and dreams of over two million people. It sprawls out horizontally over 452 square miles of valleys and upland. Of foothills and beaches. This is the case history of a killer, taken from the files of the detective division. The facts are told here as they happen. The story properly starts here in Hollywood division headquarters at one o'clock of the June morning last year. Officer Robert Rollins had finished his tour of duty and signed out. It had been a tough day. He'd be glad to get home. His wife would be waiting up for him as she always did.
9: What were you doing back at that radio shop?
10: Miss Logan. I was on my way home.
5: Live around here? Yeah, a couple blocks down. Let me see some identification. Sure. Yeah, I guess I forgot my wallet. Look, lad. I've got to see some identification. How about my army discharge? I got it right
4: here. <laughs>
2: The police are a bit stumped, but they soon pick up the trail when some of the stolen equipment begins to turn up on the black market. They close in on Roy and his buyer. But Roy's a smart cookie, and when they try to pinch him, he opens fire, paralysing one of the officers.
10: Yes? Ready on your call to receiving hospital, Captain Breen. Hello, uh, this is Captain Breen. What is the latest report on Sergeant Jones? I see. Well, let me know if there's any change, will you? Thanks.
2: From here on out, the police must employ all of their different departments in an attempt to close in on this merciless crook. They'll need ballistics, the photo kit boys, the lab, and the good old American public, who all contribute to the dragnets that's slowly closing around Roy. The man who killed a
10: police officer. Now, some of you, he held up at the point of a gun. You may have seen his face, remembered something about it. And we want you to tell us... Exactly what you remembered. Whether it's his hair, eyes, nose, or mouth. And we're going to try to put those pieces together so that they add up into a picture of the face of the man we want. Now you can see how we're depending on it. Right? Now first, we're going to concentrate on the type of hair our man had. And if the picture looks anything like his hair, I want you to speak right up.
2: Lovely then, a police procedural. Now, I totally get that you have to be in the mood for these. But if you are, then this is a tip-top example. Firstly, it doesn't sacrifice the actual pursuits in favour of showing you how smart the detectives are. The criminal is kept front and centre, and he's devilishly good. Richard Basehart plays Roy as this very enigmatic, very creepy psychopath in the making. He's bewilderingly smart but also cunning. He reminded me a lot of the Zodiac killer in Dirty Harry. Sinister, unpredictable, and completely fascinating. The balancing act between the story of his crimes and how the police piece together the story of his crimes is perfectly pitched. Some very cool scenes of actual detective work, too. There's a ballistic scene featuring Jack Webb, who shows a bullet and then tells you all the things you can learn from it, and it's so interesting.
10: This boy's no amateur. Took the precaution of desensitizing it so it'll take normal shock. Took a lot of other precautions too. No fingerprints, no identification, nothing definite. Except the scientific. no electricity, is invented. Yeah, happy on the
2: trigger. Incidentally, Jack Webb, while researching this role, struck up a friendship with the film's technical advisor and was so taken by the procedural side of policing that he created Dragnet, the radio series, which then ran on TV and film. There's another scene in which all of Roy's former victims, who were held up and robbed, are assembled in a room and asked to, piece by piece, identify the visual characteristics of his face. And as silly as that sounds, it is an absorbing study of how this process works. And of course, in between all of this, you see Roy planning his next job, pulling off his heists, doing what he can to stay one step ahead of the law. It's a thoroughly entertaining thriller backed up with a fascinating procedural angle. Yes, you will have to be in the mood. It definitely works better if you're giving it all of your attention, but it will reward you handsomely despite its lack of big-name stars. This is heavy on story and better for it. That's 1948's He Walked by Night, one of the better police thrillers of the 1940s, trust me. Well, a rare treat for you this time around, it isn't just me preaching about the glories of old Hollywood. The folks who make the films you know and love are also fans, and today, a wonderful treat for you. My dear friend, Hollywood screenwriter Larry Wilson, joins me now to talk about not just his incredible career as one of Hollywood's most original creatives but also the ways in which classic Hollywood has played its unlikely part in shaping the wonderful characters that contemporary audiences have come to love. Well, I'm incredibly excited today to welcome onto the show not just a fan of horror movies, but a man who has himself contributed to some spooky hit classics of his own. In fact, should that be altogether ooky classics of cinema, my guest is none other than Hollywood screenwriter Larry Wilson. Now, Larry co-created Beetlejuice from 1988. He co-wrote the fabulous screenplay for 1991's The Addams Family, personal favourite. He also wrote for and acted as director on the TV series Tales from the Crypt. He wrote The Little Vampire from 2000. Larry is a genuine Hollywood legend and he joins me today. Welcome to you, Larry.
11: Thank you so much, Adam. I'm very (laughs) happy to be here.
2: Before we go on, I have to quickly ask you, um, is it true that you also worked on Alfred Hitchcock Presents? I I did.
11: That's actually how I met Tim Burton many years ago now uh, they took the the Alfred Hitchcock the the anthology show and they colorized Alfred Hitchcock's introductions uh, and so yeah it was it, it, they and you know so they could create new episodes of at the mm. Alfred Hitchcock Presents and they did a new anthology show and uh, my Beetlejuice writing partner and myself adapted a Ray Bradbury story which was quite an honor on its own called The Jar and Tim Burton uh, directed it and that's really how we got to know Tim and it was, and it was the first thing that I had produced and it was the first thing that I wrote with my Beetlejuice partner Michael McDowell and then to have Tim Burton direct it that that was a, that was a good start
2: it <laughs> also also kind of must have grounded you in classic cinema in a way just you got the Alfred Hitchcock connection what a way to come up oh yeah you know, I was
11: a huge Hitchcock fan, and I knew the anthology show from when I was a kid. And I was a huge Ray Bradbury fan too, so it was kind of like, you know, and you know, just all these all these uh, wonderful things that have been such a part of my of my life. Uh, uh, and to do the, the Hitchcock uh, episode, it was great, you know, and it turned out well, too. You can find it on YouTube. It's very 80s, the hair, the shoulder pads, <laughs> <laughs> all of that. But, but it, it's, it's a pretty cool little story. And it's definitely, you can feel Tim being Tim Burton uh, and you can feel Michael and me and, and where Beetlejuice might come from. So yeah, I'm actually really happy with it. I hadn't seen it in years and then I, uh, I found it and watched it and I was like, yeah, okay, good start.
2: Yeah, <laughs> Nice. So the Alfred Hitchcock Opener, um, introduction the framing thing he did can you remember roughly which one they picked for yours
11: oh my gosh I wish I could I, I, I was probably uh, as I remember the way they did this show there's probably an original Alfred Hitchcock episode called the jar because right. they were yeah yeah because they were doing um I, I that would be a great one to look out up actually but mm-hmm. i would think it was and those alfred hitchcock introductions were so classic i mean oh they were goodness, yeah yeah, they so were good. amazing yeah, <laughs> yeah i'm gonna yeah.
2: i'm gonna go away and find uh the introduction they used for your episode and and put it in here because um that you know they work as audio as well they're so clever they're so great oh that'd be brilliant. yeah that'd be great yeah good evening
6: i've been examining the fingerprints on the inside of your television screen. Very unusual. They're all thumbs. That's it. They must have been left by your television repairman. I have a 27-inch set with an 8-inch screen. It also has an adjustment for colour. The adjustment consists of a palette and brush, and the viewer simply fills in the numbered squares. It takes a very deft hand. Do I peek you? I hope so. A program
2: host should always be a good peeker. Well, few people know more than you when it comes to horror, and so I thought it might be fun to talk to you today about the surprising places from which you've drawn inspiration. I mean, your characters, I think anyone could agree, if you say Beetlejuice and the Addams Family, they certainly have a distinct vibe to them straight away. So how did you fall in love with that kind of cinema, that kind of story, that kind of horror, comedy, weird vibe? Well, I
11: always say, because it's true, that my all-time favorite movie now and forever is The Bride of Frankenstein.
2: Oh, wonderful.
11: And I saw originally on, on uh, television in Los Angeles, there was a Saturday night show called Shock Theater. And what they had done is that universal package of the classic universal horror films uh, they had finally sold to television and Shock Theater had a horror movie host after, uh, who, you know, he, he arrived in a coffin and came out, you know, and then introduced <laughs> the movie. And, and it was all it was all the classic uh, universal horror movies, uh, which I loved. But Bride of Frankenstein just did something to me. I, I really considered Adam, I considered a perfect movie. And, and it's also a very audacious movie because it goes through so many tonal shifts. You know, sometimes it's high melodrama, sometimes it's, you know, like this, this, you know, this camp kind of comedy. Then it's then it's like incredibly poignant. You know, it's it's a Christ metaphor with Frankenstein as as Jesus you know, literally, literally uh, you know, hung from a cross at one point. And it's seamless. It all works together. That that film, that one just, I was determined after seeing that, that, that I was going to do something in the movie business. And it was going to be something that had to do with horror movies. And I think particularly I wanted to do, You know, at a very young age, a very naive way, something
2: that was The Bride of Frankenstein. As soon as you said The Bride of Frankenstein, it's it's like a light bulb goes off in any Beatles. Yeah, I was. totally. They could play as a double bill, couldn't they? Well, they,
11: they could, you know, and I had I was so fortunate that just a few years ago, I got to see it. In a very uh, on a big screen, a very pristine new print, and I've seen it many times over the years. But seeing it uh, on a big screen, and I don't know that I'd seen it on a big screen before. It's as absolutely good as I thought it was. And uh, and again, seeing it now from the perspective of all these years later, it is that blend that it just it, it go it goes so many places. Again, from comedy to you know some some pretty terrifying stuff to. To kind of you know high melodrama, and then there's a uh, Doctor Pretorius, you know one of the great camp performances <laughs> of all time. So yeah, so that was a big one, and and yeah, you could put it on a double bill with Beetlejuice.
12: Before I show you the results of my trifling experiments, I would like to drink to our partnership. Do you like gin? It is my
4: only weakness. To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs>
2: One of the parts in it that always stands out to me, you think it can't get any weirder. And then you go to Dr. Pretorius's lab and he unveils these miniature people that he's made. And you just go, what? It's what? Insane.
11: Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but there you go. I mean, and, and I, I forgot to mention the miniature people in the jars. Mm. I mean, incredible. You know, the wonderfully surreal touch, comic, bizarre and perfect. Just perfect. It all works
2: together. Yeah, absolutely. Audacious as well. I mean, James Whale was adapting Frankenstein, I think. But when it came to Bride, I think he just said, well, you're going to have my movie. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> I I think so too, you know. And
11: then Colin Clive is so brilliant in it, uh, you know. And and uh, I, I think that historically he was in a very bad place in his life emotionally, and that angst and that nervousness just so pours through that performance. I mean, he's brilliant in it. Mm, you know? sure and Carloff, exactly. I mean, we've, yeah. got, we've got to we've got to speak of Carloff for a minute if we're going to speak about Absolutely. the brighter thing. One, one of the most extraordinary performances, I think, in the history of cinema, I truly do. And that was, of course, the other huge thing was the sympathetic monster. It's, it's the human race that is the villain in that movie in so many ways. Mm. And, and that, that, that Karloff was
2: able to bring out that poignancy and that sadness in the monster, just incredible. The standout scene in that regard, I think, is the, the blind man's hut. I mean, he really does touch the angels there, doesn't he? <laughs> it's like yeah. he's a child.
3: Who is it? You're welcome, my friend, whoever you are.
4: Uh, 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 who are you?
3: I think you're a stranger to me. I cannot see you. I cannot see anything. You must please excuse me, but I'm blind.
4: Uh, uh,
3: uh. Come in, my poor friend. No one will hurt you here. If you're in trouble, perhaps I can help you. But you need not tell me about it if you don't
2: want to.
6: What's the matter? Ah!
2: You're hurt, my poor friend. Come. Ernest Thesinger as Pretorius, I believe, influenced maybe one of the characters you wrote for in Tales of the Crypt?
11: Yes, yeah. I I wrote an episode called uh, Doctor of Horror, which again, it's around on DVD. There's a version of it. I wish it was a a higher quality version on YouTube. And I've been writing for Tales from the Crypt for like, I think, five seasons at that point. And the producer came to me and said, we're going to give you an episode to write and direct, which was like... Huge. Uh, yeah. I, I had not. I had not directed before, and to be handed that opportunity was amazing. Sort of like the uh, anthology, the Alfred Hitchcock anthology show. Uh, the, all the tales from the Crypt uh, episodes came from the original nineteen fifties comic book stories. Right and you know the Tales from the Crypt, the EC comics, the the infamous EC comics, hmm. uh, they were you know banned and burned finally, <laughs> uh, the, uh, you know and uh, they they were the forbidden fruit of comic book collectors for a long time and I was able to get my hands on a, a nice stash of them. Uh, so I knew I knew the comics very well. I'd written, like I said, for five seasons. I knew how to write a Tales from the Crypt episode, and I was given a chance. To to write and direct one of my own. And this story, The Doctor of Horror, I was able to uh, finally write The Mad Doctor of My Dreams. <laughs> and, and he was like a mix between Colin Clive and Dr. Pretorius. I, I always mess up the actor's name, Ernest Feisdager. I think perhaps you say his name. Yeah. And top. this terrific actor named Austin Pendleton played the part. And really got what I was going for. He's very big and over the top in it, but in a great way. Then it has a, a couple, of, uh, a wonderful actor named Hank Azaria in it. Uh, who Hank Azaria. Is, <laughs> Oh my God, you know, just gave a terrific performance um, and and played off of of uh, My Mad Doctor perfectly. Uh, he played all, this white trash body snatcher who was dealing <laughs> with this doctor who was, you know, and I was finally able to, have a line where the doctor, you know, my mad doctor, got to say, "Oh, nothing much. Just play God." I, mean, I, had, I had wanted to write that line for twenty years at that point. You know, you know I mean, you know, the, the the mad doctor Grail, right? Oh, nothing much. Just play God. Yeah. <laughs> I've dissected dozens of corpses, and like some elusive prey,
9: it vanishes. Just when I think I have it in my sights.
3: When you find it, what are you going to do with it?
11: Oh, not that much. Just play God. So, yeah, so, and, and, um... And I, I'm very proud of that one, that episode. It, it's sort of the the most me, I, in some ways, of anything I ever laid my hands on.
2: How did you take to directing? No, did you do it again, or have you have you any, had yeah. any more aspirations to do more of it?
11: Oh well, yeah, I, yes, I I still do, I still do, I'd still love to. I went on to direct a couple of uh, short films. I I took to it very well because I, I think I was smart about it. That the Tales from the Crypt, while well, was so wonderful about working on the show, and again, I wrote for it. For ended up six seasons, wrote and directed uh, one episode. But it was it was probably at that time one of the best run shows on television. The line producer, well, the showrunner Gil Adler was incredibly professional, and that and great crew. And you know, it, it was a show that that you know Robert Zemeckis would come in to, to direct an episode. I mean, it was wow. it, it was big name director, you know, one of my episodes was directed by William Friedkin, you know, of Exorcist. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, it, so they, they, they got a list directors. It was a beautifully uh, uh, produced show. And, but what I, what I realized pretty quickly about directing, uh, you know, I had been a studio executive and I had seen my fair share of writers and directors and how they rose and how they fell And the thing about directing on Tales from the Crypt was there were different people who were given an opportunity to direct for different reasons. And if you weren't doing it right, you would kind of gently be removed and the crew would take it over because because they could. And I had watched a a, a director who will remain nameless. I don't want to throw people under the bus. (laughs) But, but had, was running over schedule, running late, being rude to the crew and, and he just got, you know, he got sent to his room and I right. thought, well, I'm not going to be that person. <laughs> and what I, what I, what I, rea- what I realized that I could do while I had I had written the script I knew what I wanted I knew the feel of it you know it was a blend of almost like some camp comedy with with then a a pretty horrific story about body snatching and soul soul stealing but I knew what I knew and I knew what I didn't know if I if I knew fine if I didn't know I'd ask the crew a question and the the lovely thing about it was it was a great experience and at at the end of it and this was actually a very big deal I actually got like an ovation from the crew we wrapped on time and they were like, yeah, a lot of that was like, you know, I pulled it off uh, a newbie and I did well. But but I I respected the these incredibly talented people I was working with and they appreciated it.
2: It really is a collaborative process, isn't it? Oh, my God. Yes. I've worked with a, a
11: couple of directors who knew more than the, their crews did. You know, James Cameron being the, the big one. You know, and and he he was known for his battles with his crews, but for God's sake, He's a genius and he probably does know how to light it better than The Lighting Man does, yeah. you know. So, yeah. But that's a rare breed. That, that kind of temperamental
2: genius is a very rare breed. Going back to classic cinema, yeah. how would you say other classic films may have influenced your work and where, where could people see it most evidently, do you think?
11: Well, I, I mean, there's, there's some, as homages to classic cinema <laughs> yeah. Yeah, through a, <laughs> throughout my work, so some, that, that's a euphemism for I stole it. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, I, I was a very, I was a very lucky uh, little boy because my obsession with horror movies, uh, I had a very patient mother uh, who, would, who would take me to see all of these horror movies that she didn't want to see at all. So I was steeped in horror from a very early age, not only on television, but going to the movies. And I mean, and there, there's like a few moments in Beetlejuice that are—they're absolutely me paying tribute to some of these movies. You know, the opening scene—and uh, for everyone out there, if you watch Beetlejuice again, which I hope you will—there's there, a there's a tarantula that crawls over. It seems like it's a giant tarantula who crawls over Barbara and Adam, who become the ghost, uh, Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin. It crawls over their house. But then the camera pulls back, and it's revealed it's it's a model town. And that image of that tarantula came from my favorite favorite nineteen fifties giant insect movie, which was like like a wonderful genre to have experienced. You know, a movie called Tarantula, and it's it's just one of the one of the great yes these days pretty camp giant, giant bug movies. But and I had a wonderful lobby card of of Tarantula and the giant tarantula crawling over buildings. And that became like, the, it's the opening image of Beetlejuice
1: mm-hmm.
11: Beca- because I just thought it'd be such a great way to, you know, to start the movie. And also, you know, it, it, it said this is not going to be what it seems. Mm-hmm. This isn't a giant bug. This, this, this is a regular sized bug crawling over a model house. This movie is going to try to fool you like that. The character of Beetlejuice himself, I'd been a writer. I, stopped writing. I became a studio executive. Uh, I realized that I was meant to be a writer. I went back to writing. And uh, the first thing I, I was writing was with my uh, writing partner who I had met, uh, Michael McDowell. Uh, and I had a great producing partner also that I always need to name because he's one of the unsung heroes of Beatles, just actually, uh, Michael Bender. Uh, was his so the two Michaels I always referred to them as Michael McDowell and Michael Bender. And we were talking about well, we're going to work together. What do we want to do? And I think it was me who said a psychedelic ghost comedy. And I had no, you know, who knew who knew what that meant exactly. But that that was sort of you know the, the starting point. And and my writing partner Michael McDowell was living in Boston at that time and he'd come to Los Angeles. He'd gone back to Boston and he called me over the weekend and he said, OK, here it is. It's the humans haunting the ghosts, which I thought, oh, that's great. Oh, OK. and Yeah, just like this is a perfect, you know, like, like that singular idea, which is so important uh, when, when you're when you're creating a film. And it was just perfect. You know, it's just the perfect reversal. It's, it's the the humans, you know, uh, wonderful Catherine O'Hara, you know, and, and the hideous New Yorkers uh, hmm. who, who are going to come in and haunt these poor ghosts. And, and of course, what happens is the Barbara and Adam—the ghosts—are too nice to, to be scary. And then the idea was, okay, they're going to be too nice to be scary. What are they going to do? We're, they're going to hire a, a gunfighter, a demonic gunfighter, <laughs> who can come in, and that led into a discussion about Beetlejuice. The f- first thing I said about him was, "He's Groucho Marx from hell," That's and perfect. I. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean and I think I think if you if you watch Beetlejuice with that in mind, oh you can goodness. see where <laughs> yeah, where that that was, you know, and particularly Groucho Marx in Duck Soup. Again, one of my favorite 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 movies all, all time uh, on the top 5 list. Actually, in the very first draft of Beetlejuice, it referred directly to Groucho because the first line again, this was in the first draft of Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice says, "Never mind that, pick a card." which is what i think one of the maybe the first thing groucho says in duck suit and but a beetlejuice fans out the cards and it's a tarot deck and the card that barbara and adam choose is death
4: we've been expecting you as chairwoman of the reception committee i extend the good wishes
5: of
6: every man woman and child of fredonia
5: never mind that stuff take a card
6: card what will i do with the card
5: you can keep it i've got 51 left now what were you saying
11: the groucho marks from from hell set the tone of that character just, you know, the Groucho's, and I always say to my writing students who, when I'm talking about Beetlejuice, get thee to Google, and Google, watch Duck Soup, or at least watch excerpts from Duck Soup, and watch Groucho in a- action, because he's, to me, the great comedic anarchist of all time.
0: I've sponsored your appointment, because I feel you are the most able statesman
6: in all Fredonia.
5: Well, that covers a lot of ground. Say, you cover a lot of ground yourself. You better beat it, I hear they're gonna tear you down and put up an office building where you're standing. You can leave in a taxi. If you can't get a taxi, you can leave in a huff. If that's too soon, you can leave in a minute and a half. You know you haven't stopped talking since I came here? You must have been vaccinated with a phonograph needle.
11: So Tarantula, Beetlejuice, and then, then another sequence that was really inspired by things I love. I love the classic Tom and Jerry cartoons, the Tex Avery mm.
2: cartoons. Oh, goodness me. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and I, <laughs>
11: I know you do too, Adam. I, I, what I loved, particularly about the Tex Avery, uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons, is that incredible like vicious slapstick violence, mm. but it's so hilarious. And and the thing about it is that you can pull everyone apart, you know, particularly Tom. You can mm. you can put them through a meat grinder, but you'll come <laughs> Out and you'll be okay. <laughs> Just the best. I, I, I mean, such wonderful animated slapstick. And there's a sequence in Beetlejuice that, in my mind, was directly inspired by those Tom, that kind of Tom and Jerry violence, where the ghosts. Are, this is the first time that they're trying to scare uh, the New Yorkers out of the house, and Gina Davis tears off her face. And her eyeballs fall out, and then, uh, you know, they and put then, through the then, head, then, they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so exactly, good. yeah, and then, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, she decapitates uh, Adam Alec Baldwin, you know, and is holding his severed head. But, but, but the, but the people can't see them. the The, the New Yorkers can't see them, so it's all in vain. But, but that that very violent, you know, comedically violent slapstick. It was really like, I was thinking, okay, this is gonna be a Tom and Jerry moment.
0: Not bad, not bad. Now you, go ahead. Okay. You look great.
2: You could totally see Tex Avery in that sequence, especially because it turns slightly stop motion, doesn't it? I mean, it even becomes animated. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting
11: you said about the stop motion and all that. I've uh, I've had people who worked on Beetlejuice say, well, you know, it was the last analog movie. Uh, It it was, yeah. And I don't know if that's exactly true, but uh, there was no CGI. It was all, you know, Tim Burton's... uh, design genius but all done uh, all done in real time with you know makeup effects stop motion effects and i think it's one of the things that makes the movie so unique and uh, makes it last
2: yeah rumors are there there's a sequel coming are you are you up to speed on that are you involved in any way oh, i, I, I <laughs> i'm
11: so up to speed my head once to explode, uh <laughs> which would be perfect <laughs> for Beetlejuice too, I guess. Uh, so there, there, there has been talk about a Beetlejuice sequel since Beetlejuice uh, first first uh, appeared and and became like this surprise hit. I will say this much: uh, there was an announcement a few months ago, I was told by uh, the powers that be that that announcement was premature. Okay, it w- it wasn't said that nicely. by the people who told me, (laughs) but there, there's definitely talk again. And, you know, I, I really, I really hope that it's serious talk and i'm i'm not going to lie to you or, or your your attaboy clarence audience i hope <laughs> it's serious talk because i will make a lot of money uh, which <laughs> okay <laughs> which i so thoroughly deserve damn it. but well, but I'm but i but i but i will i will say this about it too though adam i want it to be good mm. if, if if there's going to be a beetlejuice sequel i i want it to be good you know in in the first movie well the only movie Beetlejuice. i think Beetlejuice is in it for 24 minutes mm-hmm. there's no cgi and my fear would be but i don't but i i think that the gatekeepers aren't going to allow this to happen that the thing would be well if 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 it's Beetlejuice, uh, put him in the, you know, he should, he should be there for, for the entire 90 minutes or whatever, or, yeah. or, you know, or let's just pack it full of CGI because we can do it now. That would, that would be sad to me. Uh, you know, that, that movie is lightning in a bottle. And I, I, and I actually will say I I've done some pretty good work in my career, but that's the one I'm going to be remembered for the most it just came together in this extraordinary way, right people, right time. Yes, I'd I'd love for it to happen, but I, I do want I I do want it to be good because I'm so proud of that movie. I'll tell you, Adam, what's what's really what's really fun that's happened is there's a Beetlejuice musical now. It's on really Broadway. Is, yeah. It's it's a big hit. Mm. It's really good. It's touring the United States uh, starting next year. It's already had a, it's gonna tour the world. It's going to be in your part of the world. I think next spring it's going to be going to have a West End premiere. Uh, It's already uh, played Korea, (laughs) translated into Korea. And I'm so happy with it because I think it really captures the spirit of the movie, but does
2: its own original thing with
11: it. Plus, it's all
2: practical on uh, stage, I'm assuming. No. Oh my uh, god, yeah. yeah No
11: CGI. It's one of those shows that just for the eye candy alone, you want to see it. Shake,
12: shake, shake, Sinora, shake your body liner. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake it all the time. Work, 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 Sinora, work your body liner. Work, 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 Sonora. Work it all in time. My girl's name is Sonora. I tell you, friends, I adore her. And when she dances, oh brother, she's a hurricane in all kinds of weather. Jump in the line, Rocky Body and Time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line, Rocky Body and Time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line, Rocky Body and Time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line, Rocky Body and Time. Whoa. Shake, 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 Sonora, shake your body line Shake, 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 Sinora shake it all the time Work, 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 Sonora, work your body line Yeah Work, 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 Sinora, work it all the time. Sinora, she's a sensation, the reason for aviation. And fellas, you got to watch it. When she wind up, she bottom, she go like a rocket. Jump in the line, rock your body in time. Okay, I believe you. Jump in the line, rock your body in time. Heist those skirts a little higher. Jump in the line, rock your body in time. Off the chimney. Jump in the line, rock your body in time. Shake, 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 sinora, shake it all the time.
2: And that was, of course, Harry Belafonte with Jump in the Line, the song that sent a billion movie fans off into the night with smiles on their faces at the close of Beetlejuice, and more from Larry later in the show. Very interesting little horror noir. Now a total surprise to me. Strangers in the Night from 1944, a 56-minute little oddity that I was very charmed by. I love a sinister gothic tale, and this is a cracker. Now, I thought the poster said, Starchers in the Night, when I first saw it, and so I was expecting some kind of drama about people in a laundry But then my eyes began to work again, and nope. Not Starchers in the Night, Strangers in the Night, which I think we can all agree is a far better title. Anyway, this stars Virginia Grey and Helen Thimmig, and here's a clip.
7: These are wonderful letters, Johnny. You're lucky to have a girl like Rosemary
4: to go back to. Is she pretty?
2: I've never seen her. Sergeant Johnny Meadows has been wounded out of the war and is on his way home to recuperate. He finds inside a library book a girl's name, Rosemary Blake. And after reading and loving the book, he writes to her to thank her for donating it. Before long, they've become pen pals and subsequently fall in love via letter. When he arrives back in the States, Johnny decides to search Rosemary out. Does Miss Rosemary Blake live here? Yes,
0: but I'm afraid she isn't at home.
6: I telegraphed. I'm John Meadows.
0: Of course. I'm Miss Miller, Mrs. Blake's companion. I'm afraid Rosemary may not be back today.
2: Uh, well, can you tell me when she will come back?
7: You'd better come in.
2: But Rosemary has mysteriously vanished. Her mother, Hilda, insists that she'll be back soon and asks him to stay with the family until she does. But something is decidedly off about the household. Hilda's live-in nurse, Ivy, seems to be trying to warn him of something, and so is Dr. Leslie Ross, played by Virginia Grey, who thinks there might be something very wrong with the story that Hilda's telling.
6: When is Rosemary coming home?
2: Didn't Mrs. Blake tell you?
6: Well, I'll be frank with you, Miss Ivy. The reason I
5: ask you is because Mrs. Blake doesn't seem to want to say. She may have her reasons, of course, but
6: she keeps telling me to wait and that Rosemary will be here. But you won't tell me when.
7: I don't know anything. You'll have to find out from Mrs. Blake.
6: Well, there's something I'm sure you could tell me, however. Who painted Rosemary's portrait?
0: I don't
7: know.
5: Well, you see, I studied painting in San Francisco before I joined up. I know that technique. Are you sure you
9: don't know the name of the artist?
0: No, I don't. But Mrs. Blake could tell you, Mr. (laughs)
2: okay i'll ask her starches in the night exchanging glances laundry at first sight i won't spoil the film for you because half of the delight is the unsure feeling you're left with after the first act there is a mystery to solve and it's a very intriguing one but best to sniff it out for yourself For a 56-minute second feature, this really doesn't have the right to be so good and so well-acted in particular. Helene Thimmig as Hilda, who plays Rosemary's mother, is terrifying in this. In the final 10 minutes, her performance goes from overwrought to almost demonic. She's fascinating to watch. In terms of what to expect, it felt very icy to me, like a Val Luton film, that sense of doom hanging over everything but all wrapped around a central mystery that keeps the intrigue alive even during the more sedate moments it also has a bit of a Rebecca vibe to it you can feel the chilly isolation and each step that Johnny takes into the household makes you grip the armrests a little more Crucially, though, it knows when to quit. Now, I don't know if this could have survived as well if it wasn't as expedient with its runtime. This is a very short film. It's almost like a TV episode. It's like a suspense play on radio. It does everything it has to do, and then it gets out of there. All in all, I really liked it. I wasn't expecting it. In fact, I chose it because I had 1 hour to kill, but it's really excellent. A definite cut above many of the programmers floating about in 44. Plus, it hasn't really left me yet. A wonderfully underseen little creepy gem. That's 1944's Starchers in the Strangers in the Night. Well, back now to my chat with screenwriter Larry Wilson. We pick up directly after his comments about the Beetlejuice musical that's currently taking the stage world by storm. And we talk about the old Hollywood influences on his screen smash sensation, The Addams Family, as well as how the world of cinema has changed across the generations.
11: It's one of those shows that just for the eye candy alone, you want to see it.
2: Well, my daughter is already a big fan. She already knows all the songs, Matilda, who... (laughs) you've you've met, obviously. She's also a massive fan of the Adams Family musical and you were extraordinarily kind when I told you, because she's been cast as Morticia in the Adams Family musical, um, and you were extraordinarily kind and gave her an entire evening and went through the character with her and also answered questions from her fellow castmates about how you drew inspiration. I think one of the funniest uh, facts you told us about the the characters as you dreamed them up in the Addams Family was (laughs) <laughs> the Errol Flynn connection between w- what you envisioned for Gomez. Well, yeah, uh,
11: you know, uh, of course. Uh, well, as we, we talked about the 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 source of our uh, inspiration, and when I say us, my my writing partner and very good friend Caroline Thompson and I was actually the original Adams Family cartoons which appeared for a couple of decades I believe in uh, New Yorker magazine but then there was a there was a television show which is where most people knew the Adams Family from but there we there we were and and uh you know going to uh, be writing a feature, and we were looking for ways to just give the characters more to do. I, I, I want to say deepen the characters, but with the Addams family, that's a very tri- mm. uh, tricky subject. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but uh, you know, I was I, I was thinking about Gomez. And I just, you know, and again, Adam, this is where classic cinema comes in for me. And it's why I'm such a huge fan of, of your work and your, your, uh, your podcast and, and your audiobooks and everything. Oh, I really am because you're, you're keeping decades of cinema alive and bringing them to a new audience. And I think that is so important, uh, culturally, historically. And they're just great movies. There's so many great movies that yeah. deserve to be seen by by contemporary audiences. And and one of my, you know, there's a few movies that I would describe as perfect. And I think that, uh, is it 1938, I believe, Mark, Michael Curtiz directed Robin Hood. Robin Hood. Oh, goodness me. Yeah. yeah. It's certainly it, one of the best films yeah. ever
2: made. It's so incredible.
11: It is. And Errol Flynn is just perfect mm. in it. Yeah. You know, he, he's, he's got that swagger. He's got that humor. He's amazing with a sword. Uh, <laughs> so I thought let's make, let's give Gomez that. Okay. <laughs> let, 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 us let's, let's make him a swashbuckler. First of all, that gives us a chance to riff on him, you know, physical comedy. And then, but also one of the, one of the big influences was um, I was a huge fan of Chinese cinema, Hong Kong cinema, <coughs> primarily. Like Shaw brothers kind of thing. And in Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. The Shaw brothers that they, you know, and, and at the time I'm talking about, and there were three or four Chinese movie theaters in Los Angeles a movie that I saw that absolutely just blew my mind, as they say, <laughs> uh, was a movie called Chinese Ghost Story. I've never seen that. It's it's fabulous. What year is it from? In the late 1980s, late 1980s. Uh, directed by an extraordinary Hong Kong director uh, named Chewie Hark, who I actually ended up working with for a couple of years. Mm. I, I I got to go to Hong Kong and watch Chewie Hark make Samurai's Fly, which was uh, an <laughs> incredible experience. But I, I love those acrobatic, uh, yeah, Shaw Brothers. Uh, you know those the Chinese, those Chinese warriors. And so I thought, okay, we'll we'll will give Gomez the swagger of Errol Flynn and that that wonderful sort of lightness, you know, uh, humor that, that Flynn has in, in his portrayal of Robin Hood. But then also let let's make Gomez part Chinese sword fighter. So you know, Gomez does a lot of flips and a lot of acrobatics mm. in, in in the movie, and that was that really came from uh, those Hong Kong movies, and particularly Chinese Ghost Story. Amazing. Yeah, and it, you know, and it was great because you know, I I I think a lot of my if I were to look at my contributions to to Beetlejuice and and in some ways particularly to the Adams family, their sight gags and and their comedic sequences that could that could come from a silent movie because another great influence on me was silent comedy. Mm. And, and there was a silent movie theater in Los Angeles, which has an incredible story which, by the way, ends in a murder. It's <laughs> oh, such a good oh, story. Everywhere. We're <laughs> hearing this story right now, please.
2: <laughs> yeah,
11: uh, yeah, a murder uh, committed over possession of uh, a vast collection of nitrate silent movie prints. It's a, it's it's a it's a it's an incredible story. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, but but there, there was a the silent movie theater operated in Los Angeles. But it was it was there for decades. What was it called, Larry? It was called The Silent Movie. It was Theater. called The
2: Silent Movie. It was, it was <laughs> okay.
11: movie Yes, it was <laughs> called The Silent Movie Theater. I'll, I'll locate it for Los Angeles Files. Uh, it was straight across <laughs> from Fairfax High School, up the street from Cantor's uh, Deli. OK, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a very famous Hollywood deli where every sandwich was named after an actor from like the 1940s. Oh you you, you, like you, you you'd go in in order. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want the Humphrey Bogart, you know. A, you know. <laughs> I'll have the fatty Arbuckle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, oh, my God. I was a regular. And because you could watch all the, these brilliant silent comedy shorts, but also they ran all of the Keaton films, which have become more widely available now. But seeing Keaton with an audience, and watching his genius and watching the light, you know, like, like how funny he just was and still is. It was great. And, and so I think a lot of what I brought to Beatles is, and particularly to the Adams family was trying to create these, these, these sequences that, you know, in, in a sense could have come from a a silent movie. And once again, I paid homage stole a couple (laughs) of big moments. The first one was, you know, thing, the hand thing, but in the TV series, he was always in a box. And uh, I said, let's take him out of the box and make him rent in or Lassie. You know, I, Adam, I, I love I love the fact that that you're uh, such a huge fan of uh, old time radio. I am, too. Yeah, I mean, I, my my very, very favorite is, is the Jack Benny show. Oh, I, so I think it is. And I think of all the uh, uh, radio comedies from that those decades. Jack Benny holds up the best it's 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 endlessly classically funny and one of the things that I loved about it it had this surrealism to it yeah and a lot of that a a lot of that was because it was on radio you know the theater of the mind as everyone Mm -hmm. says and one of my favorite bits in the Jack Benny radio shows was when he'd visit his vault If he he had to go get $20 to pay the milkman, he had to go, you know, he had to go down to his vault and it was deep beneath his house you know it had a moat with alligators <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it had a guard who had seemingly been there for like 200 years <laughs> and, and, i mean just wonderful and and, and i thought well because one, one of the uh the big uh plot point in in the adams family movie which is you know that that uncle fester is an impostor, mm. Gomez's beloved brothers and and uh He's working with his mother to steal the Adams family fortune. So he gets to visit the fortune by going to Gomez's vault, and Gomez's vault is straight out of Jack Benny. I mean, it's a total, again, homage, if you, you know, yeah. So, and then another part of that sequence, uh, it comes from a Laurel and Hardy short, I think maybe along with, uh, oh my God, the famous one about the piano going up. Oh, the music box, yeah. The music box, I I think my favorite along with the music box is is the Busybody short. Where where Lerl and Hardy have this job that that is so great because you have no idea what they're actually doing but there's a lot of there's a lot of saws and dangerous tools involved in it and Ollie gets sucked into the the factory machinery <laughs> and you see it's, it's a great sequence and you see him going through you know sucked through these shoots that he can't really fit through you know this machinery really like spanking him you know <laughs> uh, and, and it, it, it's it's a wonderful sustain, sustained bit of slapstick so i thought well let's take that too and add that to gomez and fester having to get to the vault so between jack benny and Lauren hardy that sequence was born <laughs> and, and the beautiful thing about about this adam is that you know people said, oh, my God, Lord, it's so great. Like, I'm, I'm like, oh, I'm a genius. <laughs> well, no, I'm, 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 I'm a really good thief. <laughs>
2: you should be trying <laughs> to steal from the vote. <laughs> yeah,
11: but yeah, exactly. But, you know, if, if I'm if I'm going to steal from anything, let's steal from <laughs> greatness. Yeah.
6: Oh, that's a device I had put in there, an automatic thing that if somebody comes down here, gets down who doesn't belong, you see, when they open this door that uh, bulb goes off you see and clicks the camera gosh yeah so far i've gotten pictures of two gophers in the count of monte cristo (laughs) (laughs) well that's very clever Uh, you mean just now you took our pictures yes if you'd like any they're three dollars a dozen
2: Well, that brings me on to another point. I mean, you're someone yeah. who's come from a scene, I would say. I mean, I don't want to age you or anything, but you, you've come from a scene. Oh, that please. Was a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I age myself, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> but you've come from a certain world of cinema. I don't know what you think of today's film landscape, as it were. Everything seems very disposable, very forgettable. The lifespan of a film is only designed to last a week, and then it's, you know, on to the next thing. Um, yeah. you, come, you come, well, so do I, I come from a world where... There was more of an exchange between an audience and a film, I think, because it's wonderful to be able to push a button and have a film delivered to you, any film you would like in the world. But it also makes it, I don't know, where you, whereas before you had to go to a cinema or you had to find a film yourself or even staying up late to watch a film required some kind of energy from you yeah. uh, in exchange for yeah. this experience. So I think people connected yeah. with films in a far deeper way. And I, I remember when Martin Scorsese talked about, how Marvel films are ruining things. I think people took that the wrong way, but I I think from what you've just said there is a point to be made about that you know I mean where do the next generation of filmmakers take their inspiration from you know oh it's got the he's got the wit of dr Strange and the strength of Thor it's all going to be marvel influenced whereas before we've had such a rich cultural heritage of cinema that required more devotion from its audience how how do you feel about the world of film now well
11: look um i I, I see a, a lot of terrific films still mm. and I'm actually a fan of not all but many of the marvel movies so i i but i do understand what martin scorsese was saying i, I moved to los angeles when i was 17 years old mm-hmm. uh with some sort of goal of being in the movie business i did not know quite what that was yet we're talking well since you said I'm 1990s 80, right? <laughs> we're, we're, <laughs> no no i we're we're talking we're talking like like I, I moved to los angeles in 1967 Right, And every, everyone thinks of La, the Los Angeles music scene at that point being incredibly vibrant, which it was. Mm-hmm. But also the film scene was amazing. And it really was going with your friends across Los Angeles to watch movies. At that time, like I said, there were like three or four Chinese movie theaters. There were three or four great Japanese movie theaters. There was a there was a movie theater that showed Bollywood movies on the weekend. There were incredible revival houses uh, uh, that were showing classic thirties, forties films. There was a silent movie theater. There was a, a, a repertory theater on on uh, Los Feliz Boulevard that's still there called the Los Feliz that was showing all of the you know the great European directors, the New Wave directors, and Bergman. Mm.
2: Um Fellini, uh, all that kind of
11: thing. Yeah, yeah Fellini all all of that it was all there and it and it made for a night out you would go you yeah. would go and you're absolutely right you would go to your friends you had to invest the time to go you had to invest didn't cost a lot but you had to invest some money then you'd go out afterwards and 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 talk about the film Tri- triple bills movies that made no sense that they were together but there they were and yeah, you you invested in film culture in, in in this way that it's wonderful that we can stream everything today. I get it. Oh, then the other thing I have to say because I know you appreciate this, Adam. So I could I could go see Bergman hmm. or, or Fellini at the Los Feliz Walk Home, and there was there was a, a, a TV station in Los Angeles that was showing all of the Warner Brothers films from like the pre-code through all of the 30s. They just bought the whole package and ran them all night. It's
2: my dream channel.
11: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, God. You know, I I love those early Warner Brothers films like I know you do. So to be able to go from, from Bergman to James Cagney, Pretty good, right? Wow! I mean, not bad. <laughs> that in investment of um, the time and making the effort, and then the great fun of it—you know—I I, I learned to eat Japanese food by going to Japanese movie theaters because there was always a Japanese restaurant next door. Mm. Um, so streaming's great. I'm glad it's there, but I don't know. I, I mean, I know there's lots of young, and I'm planning on teaching them. Lots of young people out there who are deeply invested in movies, deeply mm. invested in film culture. Uh, but is is it the same as having to you know make that effort to go see it no it's probably not mm.
2: i just you, i'm sure it'll come back i mean, it feels like it feels like there's kind of a, a growing voice that is saying films need to be more appreciated instead of being so disposable. I mean, 10 yeah. poor films that cost two three $300 million for Netflix now hardly getting any publicity. They're just like, oh, great, here's a new film with Dwayne Johnson. or Here, Here's a new film that costs us $200 yeah. million, It's popular for a week, and then it's gone. It goes away. It, it's crazy. Yeah. How- <laughs>
11: Again, I, I I know that a lot of people thought uh Corsese was being a cranky old director, but yeah. he did have a point, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Talking of students, so you just mentioned there, the amazing thing is you are going to be teaching people now the art of screenwriting. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that?
11: Well, it it, it is exciting, yeah. And I am uh, starting uh, the Wilson Workshop, and I'm going to be teaching uh, teaching and doing uh, script consultations. Also, I'll be working teaching classes, but also working one on one with screenwriters. I've actually been uh, teaching screenwriting for over thirty years. Uh, I've done it all throughout my career. I find that for me, that teaching and, and writing go very well together. And I always feel like the teaching kind of keeps me honest <laughs> in a way, uh, because I, I've got to convey whatever my truths about screenwriting are. And it then it ends up making me think more deeply about my work. I'm being aided and abetted through through this uh, workshop uh, by, my, by my wife, Cynthia. And I'm going to be offering uh, multiple classes, which I can talk a little bit about. I'm going to be doing one-on-one consultations with writers, which is something I think I'm very good at. But, you know, Adam... People are going to ask, and, I, I, and I'm going to try to explain it the best that I can. Why take a class from Larry Wilson? There are a lot of screenwriting teachers out there, Adam, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, yeah. I, I, I often say you can throw a, a brick in Hollywood and probably hit a screenwriting teacher. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I think that I don't think I know the thing that separates me out from 99% of the other screenwriting teachers out there is that I'm a working screenwriter Mm -hmm. and I, and, and and I'm a successful working screenwriter Mm -hmm. and, uh, it does make a difference in my ability to teach screenwriting because Adam, I'm still in the trenches. I'm still working six days a week. I, I'm, I'm still in the business of, of screenplay writing. I think it just gives me a, a, a kind of insight into the process of screenwriting that, frankly, I don't think you can have unless you're doing it, unless you're doing the job. The the other thing is, Adam, I was you know I was a, a studio executive for uh, quite a few years. I was a story analyst. A script reader for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. So I have been on both sides of the desk. Mm -hmm. The other thing I like to do in my classes is just give people a true sense of what the business of screenwriting is like. Because I, I always say to people, there is no more useless document than an unproduced screenplay. <laughs> <You> know, it's <laughs> it, 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 that, and that, that's almost true. Yes, that an unproduced screenplay can get you a job, uh, perhaps, but they're, they're they're meant to be made. The, the classes, are, and and they will be. The, the website will be available very soon. By the time this uh, this is broadcast, uh, do you broadcast a podcast? What do you do with a podcast? Adam? <laughs> you, you send it out. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, you, I send it out I, as merry way. Well. So interesting. The world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you said that I when this podcast has been sent on its merry way that you'll be able to go to the wilsonworkshop.com. You will be able to go there and you'll you'll see the classes that we're offering. I think that it's going to be an exciting group of classes. It's going to start with with a reasonably priced uh, weekend screenwriting class where I think I can really walk people through the, the, the basics of how to write a screenplay. I think it's going to be a great class for first time writers and uh, for writers that just want to refresh a course and sort of screenplay fundamentals. And then I think also it, it's going to be great for people who just want to want sample, you know, they, they want to figure out if they actually want to write a screenplay. The other thing we're going to be doing, which I'm really excited about what well, I'm going to do, I'm going to do my horror and fantasy writing workshop, which is a which is a workshop I've done for years and years now. And it's really a deep dive into into the horror and fantasy genres, but particularly focus on on writers uh, not getting trapped by the cliches and the stereotypes that those genres can be full of and really finding their own voice within. Horror and fantasy, which, you know, I thankfully was able to do. Then I, we're going to be doing like a Beetlejuice workshop and an Adams Family workshop where I'm going to be teaching screenwriting to those two movies. They both have a lot of fans and they're actually great movies to teach to uh, in terms of just the fundamentals of screenwriting. But also I, I can talk about how they were made and h- again, how the Hollywood machine worked a story I'd love to tell is about Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice. You know, when Beetlejuice was being made, he was not going to be able to come to the Beetlejuice shoot until very late. So the movie of Beetlejuice was being made without Beetlejuice, <laughs> you know, that my, because Michael Keaton wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll never forget the day that we saw his first makeup and costume test. And again, this was pretty late into the shoot. And And sitting in that screening room, and watching Michael Keaton now in the Beetlejuice makeup, the Beetlejuice costume, and start riffing on that character. And we were like, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> this, this, this is going to work. Now, I love, I, I, one of the reasons I love teaching to, to Beetlejuice and to the Adams family too, which is a lot of stories is that that I can actually walk people through not only how to write but how it, how it works when those when a movie is getting produced. And then the other thing that I'm going to be doing is uh, script writing consultations right. where you can work with me one on one as a screenwriter. You know, I I was when I was a studio executive, my job was really writing script notes. And I'm going to say I think I'm very good at it. I think I'm a very supportive person to work with. I, I I I think I've got good ideas that I that I that I help writers uh, find the best the best idea for their story. I help writers find their voice, and I you know finally I'm just going to be offering again you know like thirty years plus worth of experience and the fact that I'm I'm still a working writer. Mm-hmm. You know Adam, you very kindly read my screenplay, *Loose Spooks*. I did. Um, I loved it. <laughs> Oh thank thank you you know, you know and I, I and I said to you when I gave it to you I said I'm I'm, I'm excited about it I, I think it's good it's 20 30 pages too long Now that's a real world screenwriting problem that I've had to deal with that the fact that I that I'm a screenwriter as well as a screenwriter teacher and having to work through a problem like that it just brings something to my teaching my teaching is just it, it because, because I've got this first-hand experience of, of writing going on.
2: Can I just ask, is this all being done remotely, or will people be able to meet you? Oh, yes, you? yeah. I,
11: I'm going to be teaching the, the workshop classes on Zoom. Mm-hmm. We are, but these are just in the planning stages, but we are really hoping to do some, uh, what are they called today, vacation education uh, classes, where people come and, and they, they plan a vacation around uh, uh, a, a week long uh, uh, on ongoing workshop with me. Yeah, and you know, it, and it'd be a great way to come uh, if you if you have a script in the works, you know, ha, have your vacation have some fun and, and we and we would be working together on a daily basis now those are still in the planning stages. But I would love to get back in the classroom, yeah.
2: Incredible. Well, you heard it there, folks. I mean, if you'd like to be tutored in how to not just put together a script, but also get it into production and speak from both sides of the desk, as Larry has worked in every facet of the movie industry pretty much, including he has been a director, as we discussed earlier on. And as you say, Larry, I think most of the people that offer these kinds of services are people who don't necessarily have the credits to back up their claims. But... Just saying, Beetlejuice and The Adams Family is enough to to establish you in anyone's mind straight away. I mean, they're gonna everyone's seen that those films, <laughs> so, so um, you come with um you come with the credentials for sure. I have a pet pedigree and I have my scars, <laughs> Which, <laughs>
11: <laughs> so and, and both both help in, in teaching screenwriting. Yes, and as you
2: say, I mean, you're in the weeds still, aren't you? Every six days a week, you're yeah. you're still writing. It's not like you gave up decades ago and no. been living on the problems. no. no, no, no. <laughs> so, no, I,
11: I, I always say people are mistaken if they think I sit around in a bathrobe and watch my old movies on the weekend. I, you know. <laughs> that's Carrie on. I'm, I'm in. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 I'm in the now. I like
2: to think. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, Larry, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a total honor to talk to you, as always. You are incredibly generous with your time. I know how busy you are. And if anyone out there would like to learn more about The Wilson Workshop or the fabulous movie, career of larry wilson um there will be links in the show notes of this episode that will take you everywhere you need to go larry thank you so much
11: thank you so much adam the please come <laughs> all are invited all contributions gratefully accepted <laughs> okay thank thank you so much adam this has been wonderful thank you,
2: you too, thank you so much
3: would you like to swing on a star Carry moonbeams home in a jar And be better off than you are Or would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long, funny ears Kicks up at anything he hears His back is brawny, but his brain is weak He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak And by the way, if you hate to go to school You may grow up to be a mule or would you like to swing on a star carry moon home in a jar and be better off than you are or would you rather be a pig a pig is an animal with dirt on his face his shoes are a terrible disgrace he has no manners when he eats his food he's fat and lazy and extremely rude But if you don't care a feather or a fig, you may grow up to be a pig. Or would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are, Or would you rather be a fish? A fish won't do anything but swim in a brook. He can't write his name or read a book. To fool the people is his only thought, and though he's slippery, he still gets caught. But then if that sort of life is what you wish, you may grow up to be a fish. kind of jumped up slippery fish and all the monkeys are to the zoo every day you meet quite a few so you see it's all up to you you can be better than you are you could be swinging on a star
2: And that was Bing Crosby with Swingin' on a Star, and my thanks to my special guest this time, Larry Wilson. And if you'd like to connect with Larry, you can do so at the Wilson Workshop. Links are in the show notes of this episode. Now, I remember all the way back when I made A Universe of Horrors that some of the films weren't actually available anywhere, which meant I couldn't so much review some of them as simply mention them. Over the years, though, the gaps have slowly been filling, and last week, I finally managed to get my hands on Jungle Captive, the third in the Paula the Ape Woman series. Yes, you heard me right. Universal, always on the lookout for new properties to add to their stable of monsters, created in 1943, a half-woman, half gorilla character called Paula, of all things.
4: We've done it. We've done it! Dr. Walters, we can't go on with that. In the past, I've been willing to help you in your experiments with animals. But this is different. I can't have my hands stained with human blood.
2: Paula was originally a total gorilla. But you know these mad scientists, they love to mess about with genes and glands and gorillas. And in the first of the trilogy, Captive Wild Woman, John Carradine's Dr. Walters does indeed mess about with the three Gs. The result is a woman who sometimes looks like an ape and sometimes looks like a woman ape thing in a bikini. He calls her Paula and a star was born. It was followed in 1944 with Jungle Woman, again starring the Venezuelan volcano Aquaneta as Paula the ape woman in a truly terrible ripoff of Cat People that is generally regarded to be the worst Universal horror movie ever made. And so of course, Universal dove straight into production on the third in the series, The Jungle Captive. The most elusive of the three. It wasn't readily available anywhere until 2020. So horror-hungry little me finally got my claws into a copy last week. Otto Kruger, Phil Brown, Jerome Cowan, Amelita Ward, and every horror fan's favorite face, Rondo Hatton, star. And here's a clip.
10: Well, then, there is a chance this time the electric needle accomplishing its purpose.
0: Oh, I hope so, Mr. Stendhal, but I can hardly believe it. That rabbit's been dead for 12 hours. I know.
10: And yet the electric current, plus transfusions, has revived the heart so that it is functioning. There's the proof. And Now everything depends upon what happens when the heart is no longer stimulated by electricity. If
0: the heart stops beating, when the current is switched off, can you resume the process?
10: No. Only one chance. This is it.
2: All right, Don. Kruger plays Dr. Stendhal, a biochemist who's obsessed with bringing things back to life. The thing is, he's actually achieved it with things like rabbits and monkeys, etc. Now he has his eyes on bigger game. Gorilla-sized, even. Yes, lying in the city morgue is the body of Paula the Ape Woman dead from her encounters in Jungle Woman. Stendhal sends his great big assistant, Moloch, played by Rondo Hatton, to go grab the body from the morgue. Go get her, Moloch.
5: I gotta check with the police first. Police? Yeah, it's the law.
2: The experiment is a success, and soon, Paula the ape woman is up and about and meandering around the farm they've chosen to set this thing at. But what she really needs in order to enter polite society is a brain enter Anne Forrester, played by Amelita Ward. She's Stendhal's assistant and she has a very nice brain thank you very much. Thing is she'll have to you know die in order to give her brain up and that's not okay with her boyfriend Don, played by Phil Brown. It also isn't that okay with Moloch who seems to have developed a bit of a crush on her. Her heart's
10: beginning to feel the strain
2: You gonna take much more?
10: About another pint Her heart'll stand it not worry about her, are you, Moloch?
6: If you take out too much brunch, you'll die.
10: Oh, Moloch. I believe you feel sorry for my pretty assistant. Don't be a fool. We're
2: scientists, not sentimentalists. Now, in order to really enjoy a universal horror from the 40s, you have to slip into a certain mindset when you watch it. You don't go into them expecting heart-rending emotional drama, You don't go into them expecting A-list star power like Clark Gable or Catherine Hepburn. You definitely don't go in expecting big budgets and you certainly don't expect to find yourself scared. As we know now, the people who love these films love them because they hark back to a style of filmmaking that could be regarded today as somewhat quaint. They're people dressing up as ghosts and ghoulies and chasing folks around haunted houses. And it might not be high art, but it's very enjoyable to watch. They're popcorn movies. They began life in the 30s in a much different vein. There you had total masterpieces such as Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula's Daughter, The Invisible Man and so on. By the 40s, Universal was a very different place and was being run by the money men who weren't so keen on the artistry as they were on The Returns. But they turned out countless crackers during this period, and I love the whole vibe of the decade. It's like a fairground haunted house. Now, Jungle Captive, let's be upfront about it, terrible film. Vicky Lane takes over from Aquanetta, and while she's a very beautiful woman, she is an absolutely dreadful actress. Her scenes in full gorilla makeup especially are face-meltingly terrible. Otto Kruger headlining this thing absolutely sleepwalks through the film. He could have been a snarling, sinister villain, much like Lionel Atwill before him. But it's almost as though he's dropped off to sleep in some scenes. Amelie DeWard, Ward as Anne again. Looks as though she's thinking about what to do after work rather than the supposed horrors before her. Jerome Cowan, though, as Harriman, the detective on the trail of all this bonkersness, is his uniformly excellent self. He bounds all over the place and there's a real loss of energy whenever he's not there. Plus, the whole thing is set in either a laboratory or a farmhouse, which also contains a laboratory. It's dull to look at, and something I've never figured out is why the word jungle is in the title of every one of these films. Never once do we stray near a jungle. So, lots to dunk on. Critically, it had a terrible time. My favourite review of this film came from Fangoria in 1999, who reviewed it by saying, Jungle Captive is superior to Jungle Woman but only in the way that one punctured lung is superior to two. But there is one thing that rescues this film for me, one factor that had me screaming with laughter and punching the air all the way through, and that is Rondo Hatton as Moloch. Now, long-time listeners may remember that a very long time ago, I reviewed a film called The Phantom Creeps in which Bela Lugosi had a hapless assistant named Monk who every time he touched anything, screwed it up it gave rise to this catchphrase. You have failed, Monk. Well, stand aside, Monk, because your title as worst assistant to a diabolical science villain has now been taken from you. Because everything that Moloch does is wrong, wrong, wrong. Yes, every five minutes, Moloch drops a bock.
10: Moloch, you clumsy fool. They found that surgical smock and traced it straight to my laboratory. Moloch, but uh, with that face, you're not exactly a cousin always. Why do you always find it necessary to kill every time I send you for something?
6: Well, he come in and switched on the lights.
10: Oh, I see. He certainly turned that office into a shambles.
6: I done all right, huh?
10: He... What are you doing with that needle?
6: Look at meet her. She's dying.
10: And you thought you'd bring her back to life, you crazy fool? You'd have killed her.
6: Ain't she dead? Where did you go? Your place in the city. Oh, you fool! Say, Doc, I ain't sure, but I think somebody trailed me all the way out here. What makes you think so? I seen lights back on me all the way
2: as I referred to earlier Moloch actually develops a bit of a crush on Amelita Ward and who could blame him and so at the film's climax you think maybe this little plot thread will pay off somehow he decides to save her life and so breaking his conditioning he tells Kruger to leave his girl alone and starts across the room and he can't even do that right jungle captive then don't know what to tell you it's terribly bad yes but in that gloriously watchable way that only late 1940s universal horrors seem to manage so well jungle craptriv should have been the title perhaps but what it lacks in horror it more than makes up for with unintentional humor come for the horror but stay for the hatton the poster says you'll scream and it isn't wrong Moloch is hilarious, a new icon. Honestly, Rondo Hatton can do no wrong. Unless he's your assistant, that is. Radio entertainment this time comes from an old friend and one of the very stars that influenced Larry when he created the character of Beetlejuice, Mr. Groucho Marx himself. Yes, we're going back on over to the You Bet Your Life studio. It's been a while since we spent some time with Groucho. This is actually my favourite ever episode of You Bet Your Life. It's the one in which Groucho meets the incredible Loveless twins. Herman and Harmon Loveless. Identical twins who married Leela and Lola. Also identical twins. It's absolutely hilarious. Wait till they arrive. Off we go then with Groucho Marx and You Bet Your Life. And
6: now, here he is, the one, the only, Groucho! That's
5: me, Father Time. Hi, audience (laughs) Well, here I am again with 1,500 smackers for one of our couples And if any of them say the secret word, the duck won't come down and pay him $100 The word tonight is tree, oh boy, he's in full swing again Okay, duck, the frost is on the pumpkin, head south, will you? Mr. Fenneman, take him with you. Uh, We have a couple of people um, who aren't married, Groucho. Are you related to this duck? No, I don't believe so. Uh, There is a resemblance.
6: (laughs) (laughs) I just say we have a couple of people uh, who aren't married, Groucho. They're uh, Miss Zale Perry and Mr. Bill Rutter. They've never met each other until just now. So, folks, you come in, please, and meet Groucho Marx.
5: Say the secret word and divide $100. It's a common word, something you see every day. Zale, Perry, and Bill Rutter, eh? And well, we'll have to go at this thing alphabetically. Uh, I'll begin with Zale. <laughs> what kind of a name is Zale?
7: Zale is a nickname, Groucho.
5: Oh, it's not like Red Zales on the sunset, huh? <laughs> no. Are you related to Tony Zale, the prizefighter?
7: No, I'm not. It's a nickname for Rosalia. For Azalea? Yes. Oh. And it was slowly shortened to Azalea, Azalea, and then finally Zale, and that stuck with well, me. Well,
5: it's, it's a lovely name and most unique. Great. How old are you, uh, Azalea? I'm
7: 21.
5: 21. Well, that's a unique thing, too. We don't often have any girls at your age around they Usually around 100 by the time I get them.
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> Let's see. You're Bill Rudder, huh? Eh? Yes, sir. Does anyone
9: ever take you for Phil Silvers? Oh, yes, they do, Croucho. I uh, only, uh... Uh, I'm known as the poor man, Phil Silversy. I don't have his money.
4: Oh. Well, who does, Do you know? Huh? I don't know.
9: What is, uh, your line of work, Bill? Oh, I've had, uh, many jobs, uh, Groucho. I've, uh, worked as a grocery delivery man. I've, uh, I've delivered circulars.
5: Do you have a job now, Bill?
9: Uh, I have a part-time job now, uh, delivering, uh, telephone directories. Oh, classified or just the other guy? Uh... Well, uh, mostly the other kind Uh, Do you find this
5: is uh, better than the classified? Uh, yeah Yeah, I mean,
9: yeah, I think
4: so (laughs) Why is that?
9: uh... Well, it's, uh, covers more territory Well, that's a
5: pretty baffling answer, now uh, Is that all you do, just deliver the classified telephone? Oh, no, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a singer, too You sing while you're delivering these books? No. Well, uh, have you had any experience as a singer?
9: Yes, I have. I've uh, sung... uh, I had a little little bit of uh, of experience as a singer. I've sung with Wally Stouffer's orchestra and uh, Ken Harris's orchestra, and I sung in a nightclub in uh, Lowell, Massachusetts. They have a
5: nightclub in Lowell, Massachusetts? (laughs) Yes, they do.
9: When does it operate? In the daytime?
4: (laughs)
5: Azale, do you have any hobbies? For example, what do you like to do on weekends?
7: On weekends, I skin-dive, Groucho.
5: You dive in your skin?
7: <laughs> Skin-diving is a sport that has just been introduced. And to skin-dive... Oh, I'm
5: pleased to meet you.
7: <laughs> to skin-dive, Groucho, it's just going beneath the surface, not more than 30 feet, with either an aqua lung or just holding your breath and swimming around along with the fish. Two, we spear them and also take many movies.
5: How far, uh, how far down can you dive with this rig?
7: With the Aqualung, I dove to 209 feet.
5: Mm-hmm. Well, I admire you, Zale. It must take a lot of courage to go down that deep. Thank you. I get panicky when the barber puts my head in the sink for a shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that getting in pretty deep for a young girl like you?
7: Yes, it is, Gaucho. It's the women's world record.
5: Well, congratulations. Thank you. Richard. Well, it's been a devastating experience talking to you two. And now let's see how much money you can win. You're going to play You Bet Your Life. Now, we start you off with $100. You try to increase your bankroll by answering four questions. You understand that?
4: Yes. Yeah.
5: Okay, yeah. now you uh, selected capitals of foreign countries. Now, what are you going to start? One hundred dollars. One hundred dollars. Well, you are a—you are the one, sale All right. What is the capital of Ethiopia? Addis Ababa. Addis Ababa right. Addis Ababa. Off to a good start. You have two hundred dollars. Hey, you really are a courageous one, you two. Now you have how much? Two hundred. Two hundred dollars. Now, what are you going to do? $90. Mm-hmm. Fine, $90. Okay, 90. What is the capital of uh, Venezuela? Caracas. Caracas. Caracas is right,
6: huh? You now have $290. $80 80?
7: okay.
5: is fine. Okay, what is the capital of Romania?
7: Bucharest.
5: Bucharest is right. I have $370. Now, what are you going to do this time? Is your last chance 70. to beat the other couple. Yeah, seventy. Seventy dollars. What is the capital of Panama? Panama.
7: Panama. Panama.
5: Oh, brother, this fellow is sharp. <laughs> Panama City. What well, we giving you?
6: <laughs> and you wind up with four hundred forty dollars. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Roger. Just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected. Miss Gwen Anderson. Her partner is Mr. Patrick Cunningham. So, folks, would you come in, please, and meet Groucho Marx.
5: Say the secret word and divide $100. It's a common word, something you see every day. Gwen Anderson. Well, you're a fine-looking gal. How old are you, Gwen? 29. 29. Mm -hmm. Well, you look pretty good for 29. You
0: look good
5: for 39. What's, uh, you have a husband,
0: eh? Oh, yes.
5: What sort of work does your husband do?
0: Well, he's an electronic technician at Hughes.
5: Do you have a job?
0: Yes, I'm a crane operator, got uh, You're a what? I'm a crane operator.
5: Crane? Uh, you, m- you mean with birds in the zoo?
0: No. I run a- an electric overhead ridge crane.
5: And you operate on these cranes?
0: Well, we pick up- Steam a- shovel, you
5: mean?
0: No, it's not a steam shovel, it's a crane. And we pick up different shapes and-
5: Crane oh. and Jewish is horseradish, did you know that? that's <laughs> <laughs> no, true.
0: Well, it isn't
5: at Harvey Aluminum. Well, uh, you say this isn't a steam
0: shovel? No, it's a crane.
5: Well, what is the difference between a crane and a steam shovel?
0: Well, a steam shovel runs on the ground and scoops stuff out from the ground, and the crane runs up in the air picks stuff up on top of the ground. Well,
5: Mm -hmm. do you ever get butterfingers and drop a ton or two on somebody's foot?
0: Well, I've never dropped anything with the mansaver, but I've dropped stuff with the belts. However, sometimes you pick up something more than you want.
5: No, I've done that frequently. Huh? <laughs> it's, it's always ended disastrously for me.
4: <laughs> well, now, let's see. Who are you again? You're, uh, you're Gwen Anderson,
5: huh? No, I, I'm Pat Cunningham. You're Pat Cunningham. Well, no. who's Glenn Anderson? I think this young lady standing Oh, Steve you're Gwen, G- An- oh, it's Gwen Anderson. No, I thought I was talking to him all the time. <laughs> Boy, you you can get confused up here. Well, you're a handsome and patient young man, and if you ever like a ride on a crane, I'm sure we can arrange it. Right? How old are you, Pat? I'm 28 years old. Yes. 28. Are you married? Not yet, no. Now, what sort of work do you do, Pat? Well, Groucho, I uh, own and operate a, sp- a sporting goods store, and I'm a bullfighter. You're a bullfighter. Yes, uh, In the please. store? You have a bull? Uh, <laughs> not in the store, no. Is this true? Yes, yes, sir. I've been uh, fighting bulls
9: for two years. I started over in uh, Spain last year.
5: Well, that's a fairly normal job for a young man of 28. <laughs> especially if he has no desire to be 29. <laughs>
4: well, you're
5: a charming couple, and it's been an, ex- ex- an experience <laughs> talking to you two. Now, let's play your
6: bet your life. In the race for the $1,500, the first couple won $440, and the secret word is tree.
5: You selected sports, and this you ought to be easy. Good for you. You have a sporting goods store. Remember, the more the question is worth, the harder it is. Now, uh, one answer between you on everything. Now, what do you want to start with? Start at 50. 50. In golf, when a player finishes a hole and one under par, what do you call that score? That's uh, a birdie. That's right. A birdie is right.
6: Now have one hundred fifty dollars.
5: Now then, what are you going to go for? Sixty. 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 The fastest recorded time for a certain track event is three minutes fifty-eight seconds. What is the event? The mile. The mile run with Bannister. You now have two hundred ten dollars. Now then, two hundred and ten dollars. What right. are you going to go for? We we'll go for the door right now. Uh seventy. <laughs> seventy. All right. Seventy. What famous racetrack is located in the Miami area? Uh, Santa something, wait a minute, uh, uh, Corona Del Mar? Um. Santa? no, hi Alia. hi, Alia. You lost right.
6: half your 210, you now have $105.
5: Okay, now don't get discouraged. $80. we will take the $80. $80. In what sport is Olympic champion Pat McCormick famous? Well, that's a girl bullfighter, but this is diving. Swimming and diving is yeah. correct.
1: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
6: You wind up with one hundred
9: eighty-five
6: dollars Groucho, we have something pretty unusual for you now usually as you remember we have just two people on a team uh, but these people sort of go together all four of them so uh, we think it would be a shame to split them up so will Herman and Harmon and Leela and Lola Lovelace please come in and meet Groucho Marx
5: say the secret word word and divide a hundred hundred dollars <laughs> It's a common, common, something, something, you, you, see, see, every, every, day, day. George, you're kidding. There's no such people as these. Would somebody mind tell me what's going on here? Speak up, somebody.
0: We're two pairs of twins. Twins married to twins.
5: Could you identify yourselves and tell me who you're married to? You, Why don't you, on the end, you start. I'm Herman. I'm you're mar- Herman? I'm married to Leela. Where's Leela?
0: I'm Lela, married to Herman. Mm-hmm. And I'm Lola, married to Herman. I'm
5: Herman, married to Lola. Yeah, hey, I sure thought you were Lela.
4: Huh?
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm Groucho and I'm leaving.
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> Herman, where are you from? St. Paul and Minneapolis, the Twin Cities? No, Partage, Missouri. Carthage, Missouri. Carthage? Carthage, Missouri. Herman and I were raised there. Oh. Lola? Now, where were you? Which one is Lola? I'm Lola.
0: You're Lola. And Leila you're
5: nine. sure
0: you're not Hyman, huh? No, I'm really Lola.
5: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How old is your sister, uh, Leila? She's 59. And you? I'm
0: 59.
5: Mm-hmm. How old are you, Hyman? I'm 59. I'm Herman over here.
4: <laughs> <laughs> now, you may
5: be Hyman over there, but he's Hyman over here.
4: <laughs>
0: I'm
9: 59.
5: How long have you been married, uh, Leela?
0: We've been married 35 years, and we had a double ceremony. Oh.
5: And I bet the judge had a double scotch right after.
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> Lola, you and your sister look exactly alike to me. Is there any birthmark or vaccination to distinguish you?
0: Yes, I have a vaccination scar, and she doesn't.
5: She doesn't? She doesn't. Is Hyman aware of this? I
0: don't know who Herman is, but Hyman's aware
4: of it. Hyman, is that how you
9: tell them apart? I'm Herman over here.
4: (laughs) You
5: may be Hyman over there, but he's Hyman over here. If you want to be Hyman, you'll have to come over here. Everybody on this side is Hyman. (laughs) What do you do for a living, uh, Harmon? I'm a veterinarian. I work for the government. Oh, a veterinarian. You never ate meat in your whole life? <laughs> I said veterinarian, not vegetarian. Oh, I don't hear very well. My glasses uh, need
4: fixing.
5: <laughs> <laughs> what is your job, Harmon? I'm Herman.
4: <laughs>
9: and I'm a veterinarian, too. I'm a... I work for the government. (laughs) We're all domed, I
5: think. (laughs) Leela, did you both live in the same town?
0: Yes, we do, in Modesto, California, in the same house. Uh Same house?
7: In the same house.
5: Say, it's a good thing there's a vaccination
4: there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh...
5: Could you tell us something about the way you live, uh, Leila? We. Oui. No, I don't mean you. I meant this one.
0: That's... Lola? I'm Lola.
5: Weren't oh. <laughs> you Hyman a little while
0: ago? <laughs> I think I'm still Lola. I think I'm Leila. <laughs> I
3: know I'm
5: Looney. I don't know about
0: We live as one family.
5: Is one family?
0: Yes, we do. We have just one bank account. We all write checks on it. We have just one family car
5: well i think it's admirable that you can all live together in perfect harmony
4: <laughs> <laughs>
5: however if you ever did have a battle it'd be confusing wouldn't it nobody know who was slugging <laughs> <over>. <laughs> <laughs> a couple
4: of
5: pretty cute looking
4: guys thank, thank
5: you, you. pretty cute looking guys too thank you and now we're going to play uh you bet Your live do you all know how to play this game Yes. 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 I don't think it'd be fair to our other couples if all four of you had a crack at the answers. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you elect two of you to represent all of you, and uh, the other two can remain as the ambassadors or plenipotentiaries? One girl and one boy, or? No. Oh. We're gonna see, if, uh, well, we found out who the brains are in this family. <laughs> they just passed off, did okay, they? Okay, you two are elected. I don't let them push you around at home anymore. You notice that they're relying on you. If they don't know the answers. Think of the arguments they'll be in the next 20 years. Huh? All right, let's see how much money you can make. In
6: the race for the $1,500, the first couple is still leading with $440.
5: You select the animal kingdom, and remember, the more the question is worth, the harder it is. And your partners are one answer between you. All right, what do you want to start with? 10, 20, 30, all the way up to 100. Mm-hmm. The bigger the money, the harder the question. He wants to score 100
4: dollars.
5: 100 dollars,
4: well, all right.
5: Mm-hmm. What is the name of the gluttonous seabird used by the Chinese to catch fish? This is for 100 dollars. Talk it over. What is the name of the gluttonous seabird used by the Chinese to catch fish? Pelican. No, it's not a pelican, it's a cormorant. C-O-R-M-O-R-A-N-T. I know what they
6: are. You lost half your hundred, you still have fifty dollars.
5: All right, don't get discouraged. Now, what are you going to go for? Well, let's take... 80. 80. What is the name of the aquatic bird of northern parts of the United States that has a weird laughing cry?
3: Is that yes. the Goonie Bird? Goonie? Goonie Bird. Goonie. The bird,
5: Goony. they say. This isn't what I got. <laughs> I have a loon. A loon? Well, you lost half your 50. You now have $25. Well, keep Goony. plugging away now, kids. All right, what are you going to go for? 70? Oh, 60? So. 70 will be all right. All, all right. right, what is another name for the spotted coach dog? Dalmatian. Dalmatian is right. I have $95 now what are you going to go for 90 90 what is the name of the South American animal whose protection is a bony plate of armor some of them have migrated as far north as the United States the armadillo armadillo is right (laughs) and you wind
6: up with $185 thank you Here's the winning couple, of ground Show.
5: Here we go for $1,500. I'll give you 15 seconds to decide on a single answer between you. Think carefully, and please no help from the audience. Scotland Yard is the famous criminal investigation agency of England. For $1,500, what is the famous criminal investigation? What is the famous criminal investigation agency of France?
9: Thirty-day <laughs>
5: no. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. police. Is that it? it police. Prepar- the, prepar- the police. day police. Three-fifths. Three-fifths.
9: Thirty-day police. All right. What is the answer you two have decided upon? Well, uh, uh, take a guess. Thirty-day police. Sorte is right. <laughs>
5: we going diving
4: tomorrow.
5: Ah, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you win fifteen hundred dollars. So, uh, how, uh, how much in the quiz, George? Uh, four
6: hundred forty dollars in the quiz.
5: That gives them a total of how much, George? Nineteen hundred and forty dollars. Oh, oh! <laughs> George, you're as sharp as a mushroom. Huh? <laughs> what are you going to do with all that swag? You're uh, you're going to split well, almost two thousand dollars.
7: Well, with my share i would like to go to paris and meet the first men fish costaud and dumas and enjoy with them the mediterranean too or if there's any left i'd like to dive in the tropical waters
5: you mean with a thousand dollars you're going around looking for fish
4: <laughs> That's right, Groucho.
5: men aren't good
9: enough for you huh?
4: <laughs> what
9: about you what are you going to look for oh grouch i've been trying so hard to get into show business and uh I've been trying to get an agent, and uh, I just haven't been able to get one, so I've decided to, I'm gonna take some of that money and open up my own record company, put my voice in record, and try to exploit myself. Well,
5: I hate to see a fella throw his money away like that. <laughs>
2: And that was the fabulous Groucho Marx along with Herman, Harman, Leela, and Lola in You Bet Your Life. Just time to quickly find out now who the hell that Hollywood legend was. Well, if
0: you work with your wife and you play a stringed instrument and you have hair, even if it isn't all your own, are you Jack Benny? Jack Benny!
2: Yes, it was Jack Benny. Did you get it? You must have just quickly myself and my friend Frankie have just begun a new show it's called The Labours of Hercule and it's all things David Suchet's Poirot If you're a fan of the TV show, and if you're a fan of solving the puzzles of Agatha Christie, then do run on over and subscribe now. Links are in the show notes. And if you want more of this show, along with several hundred more hours of old Hollywood entertainment, do go on over and sign up at patreon.com slash attaboysecret. Over a hundred bonus editions of this very show are there right now for you a weekly film club night small tales which is a monthly offering of short fiction with a twist so much more and every single film i told you about today is in my classic movie library along with hundreds more ready for you to watch when you sign up go on over right now to patreon.com slash secret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode thank you so much for joining me this time Take superb care of yourselves and those you love. See you soon, and bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month. And in return, you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews and eBooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you.